Well, we're back in the book of Isaiah, and again, we have kind of a long passage, so uh, just know I'm, I'm just going to begin simply with prayer, and then we're going we're gonna to go through the passage, just take a couple verses, so we're not going to go through and read the whole thing, but so I commend that you have your Bibles open uh, to Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah 44. Uh, in your pew Bibles, if it's on page 605, 605, Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 24 is where it will be. Let me begin in prayer. Father, one of life's most important lessons is to learn that you are the one on the throne and that we can belong to you and that you who gave us life can press your life into us and transform us with such greatness that the watching world wonders, are you in them? And you are by your spirit. Spirit, we pray that we would come alive to these truths that, that our heavenly father is the potter and we are his clay. Help us to see application for our own lives in every word of scripture here that we study, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. My freshman year of high school, I had an amazing art class. And um, on day one, our teacher sat down and she, in, on, a, on a potter's wheel, and she showed us how wonderful it is to uh, take a lump of clay and spin it on a wheel and with your hands form it into something beautiful. It took a few weeks, but eventually I, I got kind of pretty good at uh, making pottery on a potter's wheel. In fact, my dad was so excited about my work, he says, I'm gonna get you your own studio. I'm like, okay, dad. You know, perhaps some of you have sat at a potter's wheel. There's something exhilarating, right? Something like godlike even. Uh, about taking a lump of clay and turning it into anything you can imagine. With this in mind, listen, perhaps the greatest truth that we can ever press into our souls is this. God is the potter. We are but his clay. That is what Isaiah impresses upon us in chapter 45, verse 9, where we read, Woe to him who strives with him, God, who formed him, us, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, uh, what are you making? Or uh, your work has no handles. <laughs> we can be this way, right? Accusing God, uh, this just makes no sense at all. What are you making? Or I wouldn't do it that way. Look, your work has no handles. If I were God, I would put handles on that pottery. So much more useful. This image of God being the potter and his people, his clay, is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. It's one of the most important lessons we can learn. And thankfully, if you skip ahead to the end of the book of Isaiah, in chapter 64, we, we realize that people finally get it. Here is what we read. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Oh, to get to that point. The great lesson for us to press into our souls this morning is that God is the potter, we are but his clay. To which most of the people here will nod in agreement. Yes, we already know that he's the potter and we're the clay, check. 
but do we? It matters not whether you're here investigating Christianity or you're a new Christian or you're maturing as a Christian. Everyone here has found themselves with their head in their hands questioning God. Why is my marriage so difficult? Why is my child estranged? Why did my child or spouse or good friend die at such a young age? Why did this or that calamity come upon me? What do you think you're making, Lord? In our passage today, God shows us that his strategies are often so confounding. (laughs) The people reading this letter, remember, were at one point in captivity in, in a foreign land, Babylon. The people, the clay, were crying out to God, what are you making? Why does your work have no handles? Why are we here? How are we ever going to get out of this? So God is telling them and us that if you would but trust him with a new openness, well, you will find that God is better than you expected. So here's the big point we need to wrap our heads around this morning. We must yield ourselves, therefore, to the sovereignty of God for he is the potter, we are the clay. We will look at this under three headings that I'm borrowing from one of my seminary professors, Ray Ortland Jr., God's greatness, our arrogance, and God's invitation. God's greatness. God's greatness is on display in the first section. And in this first section, we see it because bookend, bookends in it. In, In the very first verse in our passage, verse 24, we read, Listen, I am the Lord who made all things. And then in chapter 45, verse 7, we read, I am the Lord who does all these things. What is God saying, and why does it matter? God is saying, I'm ultimately responsible for everything that has ever happened in human history. Why does this matter? Because if this is true, listen, we can and we must trust God with the future. God is claiming that the whole of creation belongs to him because he's the one who made it. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. God wants us to understand that he alone is the creator of all things. He is the potter and this universe is his clay. But also in the next verse, the, the Lord point reveals that he gladly uses confounding means to bring about his purposes. Verse 25, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. God is saying that all the varied influences in Isaiah's day, and certainly the varied influences in our days, fail to make sense of God and the world that God created And then God tells them how he's going to save them. Remember, they're in captivity. They think God has forgotten them. In verse 26 and 27, we're not reading it, but God says he will restore his people into Jerusalem. The cities will be rebuilt. So far, so good. But then out of left field, God says this, he has a Messiah-like figure who's going to do all this, and it's Cyrus, an evil pagan king. Instead of sending a man of God like Moses to come and deliver God's people again, God promises the most unlikely savior, King Cyrus of Persia. People would have found this so hard to swallow. 
that God would use a pagan king to save and deliver his people. Understand, this would be the most humiliating of circumstances. We read it in the beginning of verse 44, in chapter 44, verse 28, rather. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying to Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, Cyrus, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, Cyrus, and level the exalted places. I will break into pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you, Cyrus, the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you, Cyrus, may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. God calls Cyrus, who hasn't even been born yet when Isaiah is writing this. It's 100 years later, right? He calls a pagan political king of Persia. He calls him my shepherd and the Lord's anointed. Readers in Isaiah's day would have, would have experienced a collective gulp. <laughs> what? These, these are titles of the royal line of David. This is messianic language. The word anointed is Messiah in the Hebrew and Christ in the Greek. So try to figure out how offensive this would have been to those first readers. And then try to think about how often we're so offended by how God works in our lives. But what does Isaiah want us to see? That God is on his throne. He is sovereign over all things, including Cyrus. And that God uses whatever persons and methods he wants to, whether we like them or not. Humbling, isn't it? What does this say to us today? It says we must make room in our lives and in our theology for God to operate in confounding ways so that when we are surprised by the circumstances in which we find ourselves, we no longer assume that God's on holiday. No, we must insist that God is the potter and we are the clay and he is free to put handles on our lives or not. So God is saying that somehow, someway, he's bending all of human history, all the good, all the evil. He is bending it towards his glorious salvation that is to come. That's what he is up to. Now, did you pick up on this? God is sovereign over all. Not just the good things that happen on earth, but the evil as well. Listen, this should be a comfort to you. Not that God's the source of evil, but as much as God hates evil, he providentially uses the evil mankind produces, and he's able to use it for good. That's the kind of God I think we can embrace and worship. Now, most moderns today want to somehow liberate God from in any way being associated with evil. No, no, no. My, my God would never allow evil to exist. Well, verse... 7 in chapter 45 shatters such thinking. Here's what God says. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Listen, God is sovereign. He is on his throne. 
And so nothing happens on earth that is not in some way ordained by God. Listen, Isaiah is not saying that God sins. Sin is our problem, not his. But listen, and let this truth comfort you. Evil is not outside of God's control. As Ortland writes, God uses evil without being dirtied by it. God is able to use evil for good. How can we know for sure? Let me ask you, what is the most vicious evil ever perpetrated in all of human history? It is the murder of God's own son by our guilty hands. But as Isaiah will say later in chapter 53, you remember this? But it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God's will. And the apostle Peter preached that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't an accident. It was God's will. Peter was saying that is that the absolute worst evil that we have ever committed, God turned it into to his, the beautiful reality of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. So listen, let's stop trying to rescue God from the problem that he created for himself. God says, I am the Lord who does all things. I make well-being and I create calamity. Listen, in saying this, God is saying, I am responsible and I have no regrets. And think this through a bit and be challenged. The very thing we perceive as a problem, God perceives as his glory. That is, understand this, God owns every dark moment of life. He bends everything for his saving purposes. And so he is Lord over your pain, if you would but let him. He is Lord over your sorrow. He is Lord over any calamity in your life. The big question, are you able to let God be God? Are you able to celebrate that God is in control over good and evil? Many people cannot. They suffer from what Isaiah addresses next, our arrogance. You know, I became a Christian in my late 20s. Prior to that, I was a vocal atheist. When I mean vocal, I mean vocal, you know. And like most vocal atheists, uh, my arrogance was astounding. I was so certain that there was no God, and I let every Christian know how ignorant they were, in a nice way, of course. In verse 9, Isaiah addresses the arrogance mankind has regarding God being our creator. Verse 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? What does Isaiah mean by woe to him who strives with him who formed him? He's speaking of how humanity is striving against its creator. God is the potter, we are the clay. And when we look at this life, our lives through this metaphor, is it not true our arrogance really shines? Because truly, for the clay, for you and me to criticize and reject the ways of the potter is absolute arrogance. And yet we do this regularly. 
But notice to whom Isaiah is writing. Isaiah is not pointing out this arrogance to atheists. He's speaking to the church or ancient Israel back then. He's writing to the covenant people of God who are functionally living as if there is no God. And we can live this way too. We say we believe in God, but we function as if he's really not our potter. But know this also, God is not offended by our honest question. When we pray, Lord, I am in such a difficult season in my life. Why am I experiencing this? I'm hurting. Would you, would you please help me? God is not offended by our honest questions. But as Ortland states, God is offended when we accuse him of bungling our lives. God wants to be our caring potter in all the circumstances of our lives, including the times we say with faith, God, what are you doing? <laughs> now, to be fair, God is not pronouncing woe upon people who got upset because they prayed for a victory at the high school basketball game, but the team lost in overtime, and so they're sad that God didn't bring them a win. That's not the nature of the degree to which the problem is here. The situation for these ancient people is far more overwhelming. Long before, when the nation was formed, King David and under King Solomon, the nation was thriving, huge armies, great power. All the nations were th thronging to come uh, to Jerusalem, to Israel. They had the temple and all of its worship, the people, thought everything was going wonderfully. They thought that they were in control. But now they are in exile in Babylon. And God is saying that he is going to send this shepherd, Messiah, king, <laughs> who is a pagan Gentile of all things to save them. And it will be King Cyrus, as you know, who issues the decree to let all the Jewish people return to their lands. And the temple will be rebuilt, but with King Cyrus's money. Talk about a gut punch. The dream is over in the most humiliating way. And can you see why they have a hard time accepting what God is doing? Our lives can be like this too. The Christian life isn't easy. We too can become uh, accusatory of God. You may love me, but why this? Why that? And so, Christians, we must be humbled again by the fact that God is the potter and we are the clay. His ways are not our ways, but on top of that, his ways are often shocking to us. We must be okay with this. More than that, we must rejoice that God is this way, that he works in surprising ways to, to, to boggle human minds, including the minds of his own people. Imagine the shock of the incarnation as it came to Jesus' mother, Mary, or to his earthly father, Joseph. A virgin miraculously conceives God's son in her womb. And the cross, is not the cross the most scandalous means by which God could ever save us? You know, the reason why so many Jews in Jesus' day rejected Jesus as the Messiah is that Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 33, says, 
Cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. See, the cross is a tree in many respects upon which Jesus hung and died. The reason why so many Jews rejected Jesus is because he was accursed on the cross and therefore he cannot be the Messiah. Jewish rabbis today use this same argument to explain to their people that Jesus cannot be the Messiah. But what they fail to understand is that as Jesus hung on that cross, on that tree, he took all of our curse upon himself. That is what the Apostle Paul rejoices in in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. God's ways are often so confounding. And so what does this teach us? It teaches us that Cyrus is not a threat to God's plan. He is God's plan. And that God's ways, though confounding and even scandalous, are way better than we think. My friends, this is the kind of faith God is calling us to have, a faith where we are humbled out of our distrusting arrogance, where we truly believe God is working in our lives, even in the pain and in the sorrow and in the frustrations of it all. That's God's greatness in our arrogance. Now for God's invitation. Here's the big idea of, of what we're looking at in this last short point. God surprisingly invites the world to himself through us, his surprising people. We see God's invitation to the world in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the, and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. Listen, they will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. What is God saying? God is saying there's a day in the future when all the nations will flock to the people of God, people from Egypt and Cush and Seba, known for their, for their wealth and their stature. The Lord is saying that he has an invitation to go out to all the nations and all the peoples of the earth. God is including all the nations in his gracious plan of salvation. It's always been this way. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Abraham, your offspring, through your offspring, all the world will be blessed. God has plans for all the nations, and we, his people, are at the center of it. You know, our missions conference is this Friday. Perfect timing, right, for this service. I exhort everyone here to attend. Maybe you've never been to one before. Maybe it sounds kind of weird, but I tell you, uh, it'll be very fruitful for all of us. The theme of the conference is embracing God's story. From the beginning of the Bible, we see that God's story is, the, is that of calling and redeeming a people from every nation in the world. We see it here in Isaiah. God again declares his intent to bless the nations. And surprisingly, he uses people like you and me to bring this about. Now, you and I, if we were running businesses, we would, we would probably expect uh, maybe God would... Uh, not be so surprising. Maybe, maybe God would just take out like a two-minute commercial at the Super Bowl 
and say, hey, you know, uh, check out my son Jesus. Find forgiveness in him. Let me invite you. Our elite universities, you know, they don't teach our, their students to, to look up. Look up and find God and trust in him. The evening news programs do not conclude their broadcast saying, take heart, these horrible stories we've covered tonight will all one day be made right because God is on his throne working out all things for his good. No. The invitation doesn't come in any of those ways. It comes how? The surprising plan of God is to use people like you and me <laughs> to bring this about. Please grasp the amazing reality at the end of verse 14. They, all the nations, will plead with you, saying, plead with you. Surely God is in you. And there is no God, no other God besides him. God is saying this. Can we, it's, it's not that hard to figure out, right? God is saying that people from around the world, people here in the Hamptons, people in our lives, will, will come to us and see God in us and come to realize there is a God, and I want to give my life to him. Remember the last two sermons, we talked about how God was bring about reformation and revival for his people, and how the Holy Spirit uh, in Isaiah, God promised one day would dwell in God's people. Well, that day has come with Pentecost. Christian, God is in you, right? God is in you, working in you. And as you live with gospel purpose, as you walk in his spirit, and love people well, people will see God in you and will come to believe. Now, some of you here are certainly thinking, uh, hmm, no, not me. I'm afraid, or I'm not persuasive enough. I'm an introvert. Uh, I'm not that interesting, right? But let's just think it, sink in. It has always been God's plan to use the weak and the foolish to bring about his plan. And so if you feel weak and foolish, well, God has you where he needs you. God has always operated in these confounding ways. We see it in verses 15 through 17. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go into confusion together. But Israel, my people, is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Listen, just try to think this through. No one, like eventually the Jews were released from Babylon and they came back and they had Cyrus's money and they start rebuilding the temple. No one back then watching the Jews struggling to rebuild Jerusalem and nobody watching Christians today struggling to serve God would think that the future lies with us. I like what Ortland says. Do people look at the church and think, if only those Christians were running the world? But God hides his greatness in our commonness. He hides wisdom and power in the foolish and the weak. Listen, God is inviting the entire world to, to come and experience his salvation 
and his embrace. And he's doing it through us. God wants people to see him in us. And so through us, God invites the whole world to rethink their lives. Some of you here are rethinking your life right now. This is a good thing. The consequences are very immense, though. Look at verses 21 and 22. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. There is none. A righteous God, that means he's good and wonderful. And a savior, that means you can find peace with him. He can rescue you. And he says, there is none besides me. Do you believe that? He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. What an amazing invitation. Your potter, your God is saying, come to me. Find your hope, find your happiness. Find meaning and purpose. Listen, every human life has one purpose for existing, one, and that's to glorify God, your potter. Existence is not about you and your plans, you and your big dreams for the next 40 years before you die. My friends, you are the clay, not the potter. You are the creature, not the creator. And God says there's no savior besides him. And he invites the whole world. He invites you to come to him, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. What an invitation. But know this too. If you say no to God's invitation, then you say no to the only God who can save you. There is no other God. There is no other way to be saved. So come to him. C.S. Lewis's fourth book in the Chronicles of Narnia is titled The Silver Chair. Perhaps you've read that. It's a fictional work of a young girl named Jill Pohl. And she's entered into strange woods in the land of Narnia with her friend Eustace Scrub. Nobody names their kids Eustace anymore. Due to poor judgment, she finds herself alone and separated from Eustace. She is very thirsty and is walking in search of water. She finds a stream, but stops dead in her tracks. And here's what Lewis writes. But although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. For those of you unfamiliar, the lion named Aslan in Chronicles of Narnia portrays Christ. Jill thought, if I run away, I'll, it'll be after me in a moment. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she could not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you are thirsty, you may drink. 
For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. It was a deeper, wilder, and stronger voice, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she'd been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her near frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Joe. I make no promise, said the lion. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. There is no way to experience peace with God other than through Jesus, God's son. You might reel against this. You might say with great resolve, my God would not make just one way to him. That's not fair. But do you see, such a response just proves Isaiah's point that the clay always finds fault with the potter. My pot would have handles. This morning, wherever you stand, let us all renounce our arrogance. Let us see the obvious. God is the potter, and we are but his clay, and he saves us with the most surprising Savior. Let us prepare for the Lord's Supper by thinking on this reality. Think this through. Jesus Christ, God through all eternity, the potter became clay. The God who made human flesh took on human flesh. He became human. Can you you, you think that through? The one who's the potter became the clay. You know, you might prefer some other way to God, but know this, nothing, nothing compares to Christ, the divine potter who became the clay for you and me. That's the gospel. This is why Christians rejoice with worship. The the potter became like one of us. And on that old tree, the cross, he became accursed for us. And there is no other stream. So let us drink from his living water. Let's pray. Father, we are, we're stubborn. We wake up with the longings of the flesh. We're thankful that your word not just corrects us, but also enlivens us and gives us hope here. You are the potter. We are but clay, and this is good. May we embrace this with great joy. May we trust you that you are, you are folding all things, good and evil, into your glorious salvation in the age to come. We trust you on the throne. Help us 
to trust you even more, we pray. Amen.